Canaan has been plundered with all bad things. Ashkelon has been brought to heel. Gezer has been seized. Yonoam exists no longer. Israel has been wasted, and its seed is no more. And Huru has become a widow because of Egypt. From the victory inscription of Pharaoh Merneptah, late 13th century BCE. Welcome to A History of the Jewish People, Episode 2, Free at Last. In this episode, we'll cover the Late Bronze Age Collapse, one of the most important phenomena in ancient history, and watch as the Israelites emerge in the land of Canaan. We'll also get into the weeds and try to tackle the issue of where exactly the Israelites came from. It's one of the most hotly debated topics in biblical archaeology, so I'm sure we'll be able to get to the bottom of it in 20 to 30 minutes. Let's begin, then, with the intro quote. The Merneptah Stila contains the earliest known reference to a people known as Israel, making it an extremely important artifact in biblical archaeology. It recorded a campaign around 1207 BCE, giving us the latest possible date by which a people known by the name Israel must have come into being. But it also gives us a few more hints as to who these people actually were. First of all, Israel was grouped under the peoples in places of Canaan, so the Israelites would have been living around Palestine, and must have been separate from the cities of Gezer and Ashkelon by the end of the 13th century. Secondly, the Stila proclaims that their seed was destroyed. Early scholars interpreted this line as referring to the children of the Israelites, their metaphorical seed. Recent comparisons with other inscriptions, however, suggest that may refer literally to agricultural production. This means that the Israelites were also farming by 1207 BCE and were not entirely nomadic. Finally, there is an element of the original Egyptian inscription that gets lost in translation. I won't get into the details of the hieroglyphic script here, but what is important to know is that while most signs were phonetic, indicating how each word was pronounced, words almost always ended it in a determinative or a sign meant to signify something about their meaning. Places and states in Egyptian were marked by a sign in the shape of three hills. In the Merneptah Stila, for example, Canaan, Gezer, and Ashkelon were all written with the sign. Israel, however, was written with a throwing stick determinative, which was used to specify a stateless people. Taken together, then, the Merneptah Stila tells us that by 1207 BCE, the Israelites existed, were likely farming, and had not developed into one or multiple states. But why, then, did the Israelites appear now? And who even were they? The first question is a bit easier to answer, but not by much. The five-word answer is the late Bronze Age collapse. Foreigners with swords knocking on everyone's doors, volcanic eruptions, droughts, famines, and pestilence to top it all off. You know, the works. And everywhere in the Near East. Probably. Scholars at least generally agree on what happened. Most of the major states and cultures of the Bronze Age Near East were destroyed or suffered serious setbacks. The Hittites, for example, were wiped out. Mycenaean cities were destroyed, and their people went illiterate, giving us the Greek Dark Ages. 
Assyria and Babylonia also diminished, and outside groups came in and replaced their existing elites. Egypt was attacked unsuccessfully, but Egypt's empire did not survive the onslaught, and pharaonic rule was irreparably weakened. And in Canaan, archaeology has revealed city after city, with a layer of ash dating to the 12th century BCE. Droughts, famines, and plagues were all devastating, but they occurred frequently enough in the ancient world to rarely shake civilization itself to its core. What's more, they often occurred in conjunction, so a drought would lead to a lower food supply, which would leave people undernourished and subsequently with weakened immune systems. But again, civilization itself was usually able to survive these disasters. But the 12th century BCE was a different story. The climate shifted, and some of the usual disasters, like earthquakes and famines, hit the Near East. But this time, many of the affected societies wouldn't recover for hundreds of years. One of the factors unique to the late Bronze Age collapse, and the one the ancients themselves blamed for their woes, was the arrival of the so-called Sea Peoples. These Sea Peoples, likely driven from their homes by famine, spread throughout the Near East and caused upheaval wherever they went. Most of the information we know about the Sea Peoples comes from Egyptian records. The Sea Peoples were first mentioned by the Egyptians around 1210 BCE. Their activities then reached a climax around the year 1150 BCE, when the pharaoh, Ramses III, recorded an Egyptian victory over a confederation of these Sea Peoples. In this inscription, Ramses III notably named the groups involved as the Peleset, Denian, Cheker, Shekelesh, Sheridan, and Weshesh. Although these names may sound alien to you, they can give us some very important information about who these peoples were and where they came from. The name Sheridan, for example, is probably linked to the island of Sardinia, Sheridan Sardinia. We also know where some of these groups ended up. Ramses III captured some of the Sheridan Weshesh and settled them in Egypt, where they subsequently assimilated into the population and disappeared from the historical record. He also claimed to have given land along the southern coast of Canaan to the Pleset. Again, the name Peleset may not sound familiar to you at first, but for the Canaanites, the P and F sounds were so close that they were simply different pronunciations of the same letter, and the same was the case for the S and SH sounds. In translation, therefore, the Egyptian word Peleset becomes the Hebrew Pelishtim, and English Philistine. This word also evolved to create the word Palestine, though it is unlikely that modern Palestinians are related to the ancient Philistines. Archaeology and genetics have teamed up with linguistics to reveal even more about the origins of the Philistines. After settling in Canaan, Philistine potters continued to make pottery in their traditional styles. Archaeologists have been able to compare Philistine pottery to other forms and decorations found throughout the Mediterranean at the time. These studies revealed that the Philistines were originally Mycenaean Greeks. The prophets Amos and Jeremiah actually claimed that the Philistines came from Crete, Kaftor in Hebrew, many centuries after the Philistine settlement. 
despite this distance in time, archaeological, linguistic, and now even genetic studies have seemed to confirm this supposed origin. For now, the last and most important thing to know about the Sea Peoples is how they dressed. More specifically, what some of them wore on their heads. If there's only one thing that I want you to take away from this episode, it's that the Sea Peoples, not the Vikings, are the only seaborne raiders in history to wear helmets with horns. Anyway, based on the emphasis of the ancient sources on the Sea Peoples, it can be easy to assume that they invaded the kingdoms throughout the Near East and single-handedly brought them crashing down. This is, in fact, exactly what early modern historians thought. But historians today, being the fun-killing, truth-seeking type which I aspire to be, have had some fun pointing out the many complexities of the late Bronze Age collapse. First off, some Bronze Age civilizations didn't collapse at all. I recently attended a lecture by Eric Klein, author of the best-selling book 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. He recently published a sequel to his earlier work, appropriately titled After 1177 BC, The Survival of Civilizations. Basically, what he found was that every civilization dealt with the late Bronze Age collapse differently. The Mycenaeans, Minoans, and Hittites were indeed blown to smithereens, but the Egyptians, Assyrians, and Babylonians held on. The Cypriots and the Phoenicians grew even stronger as a result, and began the Iron Age on an especially strong foot. What's more, scholars like to note that the fall of centralized kingdoms like the Hittites could often be a good thing for their agricultural peasant majority. Today, we tend to rely on the state for social welfare programs and for pretty important but boring things like the maintenance of infrastructure and justice. Ancient states were essentially just protection rackets, however, so most people may not have actually felt anything remotely warm and fuzzy towards their overlords. Archaeologists now think that cities like Hattusha, the capital of the Hittite Empire, were destroyed by internal rebellions rather than invaders like the Sea Peoples. Since writing is often forgotten during the collapse of civilizations, we have disappointingly few records of the destruction, so it's difficult to determine who exactly is responsible for what. What is clear, however, is that the events of the late Bronze Age collapse were extremely interconnected. In many respects, the Near East was a globalized network. Bronze, for example, required copper and tin to manufacture. Copper largely came from Cyprus, after which the element gets its name. Tin was more difficult to source. Chemical analysis of tin ingots from Israel has revealed that in the Bronze Age, Near Eastern civilizations were sourcing tin from as far afield as Afghanistan and even Britain. Disruptions to any part of this trade network could have been catastrophic to the entire Near East. Although we have evidence that bronze production did continue into the Iron Age, it is likely that economic depressions played a part in the late Bronze Age collapse. So let's now turn to the experiences of the Israelites throughout all of this. As with the Sea Peoples, for the Israelites, the shifting climate and economic collapse provided a unique opportunity. By the late 13th century BCE, they had begun to settle in the central hill country of Palestine 
with a population totaling around 45,000. Some Canaanite towns in Palestine were destroyed or completely abandoned, but these Israelites seemed to prefer to found their own settlements, leaving earlier Canaanite centers abandoned. But who were the Israelites in the first place? I certainly won't be able to answer that question, and even covering all its angles will probably be the most difficult task I'll ever have to tackle in this podcast. All biblical historians and archaeologists seem to have their own opinions and believe in them quite strongly. We'll begin, then, by discussing the evolution of our thinking as the origins of the Israelites before discussing the myriad contemporary theories. The original explanation for the Israelite settlement was, of course, the biblical one. Early archaeologists and theologians in the 19th and early 20th centuries sought to prove the accuracy of the Bible by finding evidence of the patriarchs, the Exodus, and the conquest of Palestine. To summarize very briefly, the Torah is made up of five books which tell the story of the creation of the world, right up until the Israelite conquest of the Promised Land. Much of Genesis and Exodus is concerned with telling the story of Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, also known as Israel, and his twelve great-grandsons. These twelve, the supposed patriarchs of the tribes of Israel, fled famine in Canaan and settled in Egypt. After 400 years, however, their descendants became enslaved. The rest of the Torah deals with the saga of Moses, an Israelite of the Levi tribe, who led the Israelites to flee Egypt and who received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. On their journey, the Israelites sinned and were made to wait a generation before their descendants could enter the Promised Land, the land of Israel. Although the death of Moses marked the end of the Torah, there were two other sections that comprised the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew word for what Christians referred to as the Old Testament is the Tanakh, which is an acronym for the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Nevi'im, prophets in English, begins with the book of Joshua, which continues where the Torah left off by describing the Israelite conquest of Palestine. The Israelites, led by Joshua and by their all-powerful God, sweep through the land, conquering city after city. Naturally, then, early archaeologists looked for the cities mentioned in the book of Joshua, and, lo and behold, they found evidence of destruction at each one. Perfect confirmation of the biblical conquest narrative. Or so they thought. As it happens, probably every major ancient city in the Levant has at least one destruction layer in the archaeological record, and may have many more. The key, then, is to find out when the destruction occurred. Archaeologists do this using stratigraphy. In our daily lives, people generate dirt and wind blows soil, and, over thousands of years, archaeological sites slowly sink into the ground. Older material remains at the bottom, and each layer on top marks later and later history. Each layer, or stratum, which accumulates has unique properties and can be dated by radiocarbon dating or by analyzing pottery remains. So early archaeologists located the sites mentioned in the Book of Joshua, dug down, and discovered destruction strata full of ash and rubble. Doing so, many employed horribly destructive practices that have effectively ruined some archaeological sites. 
but they also did not realize that most of the destruction layers found dated well before or after the supposed Israelite conquest. Of the 19 cities mentioned in the book of Joshua, 12 have been excavated, and only 4 were destroyed between 1230 and 1150 BCE, while a full 5 had not been occupied in the late Bronze Age at all. Clearly, then, there had been no Israelite conquest. They also searched for evidence of the Exodus and the lives of the patriarchs, with no positive results. Most damningly for the Exodus story, the Sinai Desert would have only been able to support a population of a few thousand at best. So the Israelites also clearly did not come to Palestine as a group of escaped slaves from Egypt. But if the Israelites hadn't conquered Canaan, then what happened? And if they hadn't fled from Egypt, where did they come from? In the 1920s, theologian Albrecht Alt came up with an alternative theory. If the highlands had been mostly empty, then perhaps the Israelites settled in Palestine peacefully. This theory has been appropriately dubbed the peaceful infiltration model. The last of the old theories was postulated by George Mendelhall and Norman Gottwald in the 1960s. In accordance with the new social histories of the time, their idea was that the Israelites were none other than the Canaanites themselves. According to their theory, lowland peasants revolted against the urban elites and fled into the highlands, where they established egalitarian communities organized around the revolutionary worship of a single god. This theory has become known as the peasant revolt model. Both the peaceful infiltration model and their peasant revolt model have issues, but they form the backbone of two major camps within biblical archaeology of the last 40 years or so. Proponents of the peaceful infiltration model now mainly focus on the Shasu as the source of the Israelite tribes. We actually mentioned the Shasu last episode. They were the nomadic raiders that roamed throughout Palestine and Transjordan during the Late Bronze Age. This explanation has a few notable advantages. Scholars, most notably including Israel Finkelstein, have pointed out that there is a cycle of pastoralism and agriculturalism along the fringes of the Levant. The Israelites were not the first peoples to settle down in the Central Highlands, nor was Late Bronze Age the first period of depopulation. Every few hundred years, groups might settle down or take up pastoralism again, and the Israelite settlement might have just been another turn of this cycle. Archaeological remains of early Israelite villages are also circular, meaning that houses were built around a central round enclosure. Circular camps are popular among Bedouin groups today, who keep their flocks protected and enclosed within their camps, so the circular villages might be a sign of mixed pastoral and agricultural economies. Though we have not discussed them much, the lands of Ammon and Moab across the Jordan River were also developing at the same time, and their settlements looked very similar to early Israelite ones. This is another point in the Shasu's favor, since the Shasu would have roamed on both sides of the minuscule Jordan River. The Shasu also might have brought the Israelite god to Palestine. The letters yud vav spell the personal name of the Israelite god, which many Jews consider offensive to pronounce. An Egyptian inscription from the reign of Ramses II records a victory over the land of the Shasu 
of Yud Hey Vav Aleph, also calling them the Shasu of Seir. Seir is located in Edom, a land in the Negev Desert, and an early Hebrew poem suggests that the God of Israel may have come from Edom. We'll discuss this poem, known as the Song of Deborah, much more next episode. The last point in favor of the Shasu theory is that the Shasu likely would have already been organized into patriarchal tribes. I haven't heard any scholars mention this fact, so take it with a grain of salt, but the peasant revolt model does not seem to provide any way for the tribes to organize. The main flaw in the nomadic explanation for the origins of the Israelites is the issue of population. Nomadic peoples such as the Shasu were typically outnumbered seven or eight to one by their settled counterparts. Though nomads did, and still do, largely subsist off their own produce, they still relied on agricultural surpluses and manufactured goods that came from settled populations. So there may simply have not been enough of the Shasu to account for the population wave of the Israelite settlement. So with that, let's turn to the peasant revolt model. This theory still has some high-profile supporters, including biblical archaeologist William Dever. Clearly, other civilizations across the Near East were imploding from famines, social unrest, and foreign invaders. So perhaps the Canaanites decided to join in on the fun and escaped to start farming the highlands. The Oxford history of the biblical world largely follows this line and claims that the Canaanites, perhaps joined by a small group who worshipped a god by the name yod heh decided to forge a new identity around this god in the Israelite highlands. One advantage of this theory is that it could explain the destruction of some Canaanite cities. The social upheaval may not have been universal, but particularly hard-pressed peasants may have destroyed a few cities and fled to the highlands. This theory also has some vehement opponents with some pretty reasonable objections. Israel Finkelstein, for one, has pointed out that there does not seem to be a drop in the population of the Canaanite lowlands to account for mass flight to the highlands. The peasant revolt model also does not provide a very convincing picture of how an Israelite ethnic identity would have formed, at least in my mind, nor does it explain why the Israelites repeatedly founded new settlements instead of occupying existing towns. There's also a big debate over whether Israelite pottery, settlements, and customs are Canaanite at all, though evidence swings both ways, and seems to suggest a Canaanite origin. There are still a few other theories that should be discussed before wrapping up. Some scholars, largely those who favor the peasant revolt model, have followed a modified version of the Exodus story, in which a small group of Israelites left Egypt, learned about the god yod heh in Midian, and migrated to the land of Israel where they introduced the god to the locals. Like all of the theories discussed, this is purely speculative, but it does at least link the Exodus story to the inception of the Israelites. Other scholars, more closely aligned with the peaceful infiltration model, have looked in the other direction for the origin of the Israelites, seeking migrating peoples beyond the Shasu for the ancestors of the people of Israel. Any of these theories are certainly possible, and a combination of a few, is in fact quite likely. To my mind, the Shasu version of the peaceful infiltration model appears quite convincing, but I think it likely that the Shasu were joined by local Canaanites, merging to become the Israelites. 
This is roughly the version proposed by Amichai Mazar, and is a useful middle ground between the opposing camps. There's one last thing we need to discuss before we end this episode. You may remember that towards the beginning of the episode, I listed off the names of the various sea peoples, including the Denyan people. Aha! cry ye who read their episode description. I do remember that. Anyway, the Denyan originated in Cilicia, along the southern coast of Anatolia, and were among the coalition that attacked Egypt. Like the Peleset, or Philistines, the Denyan were settled along the coast of Palestine following their failed attack. On a completely unrelated note, the Israelite tribe of Dan was originally allocated a small piece of land just to the north of the Philistines, but was later relocated due to Philistine aggression. Dan also happens to be the only tribe that was recorded as having sailed ships. Coincidence? Quite possibly. But some scholars have argued that the Danian, possibly along with native Canaanites, assimilated into the new Israelite culture. The Danian, thereafter known as Dan, simply became another tribe. This theory is highly controversial, but recent excavations at Tel Dan have revealed potential Aegean ties. Those far from being confirmed, the theory that the tribe of Dan may have originally been the Danian Sea People is certainly intriguing. So we've talked about where the Israelites came from, and now can confidently shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know, probably somewhere in the Middle East, and maybe from the Mediterranean coast, but just a few of them. But who were they? What did they believe? What did or didn't they eat? How big were their houses? What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? If you want to find out, join us next time as we dive into the early Israelites in the Book of Judges. Until then, you can reach us at historyofthejewishpeople at gmail.com or find us at our tastefully minimalist website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com. I also just made an Instagram account at History of the Jewish People. If you can, please also leave us a rating or review on the podcasting service of your choice. I'm, of course, based in the U.S., but I've been amazed to see that people have been tuning in around the world. At the time of recording, the U.S. is by far in the lead, with Australia and India falling behind, along with 12 other countries. Honestly, I'm blown away. I can't say I know how the Spotify or Apple podcast algorithms work exactly but I'm pretty sure ratings and reviews can help even more people find the show. And, of course, please tell your friends, enemies, or anyone else who may be interested about this podcast. Anyway, that's enough of a plug for now. The music for this episode was, as always, written and produced by Jacob Shaw. I'm going to try to stick with a bi-weekly schedule from here on out, so I should have the next episode ready in two weeks. And finally, thank you all for listening. And I hope you tune in next time for episode three, Settling In.